Did now. Well, see, I had it backwards before. I told you this is very complicated. Hopefully in next year's budget, there'll be a staff member to just turn on and off the microphone. That would be wonderful. Just somebody to help know when I'm muted. Not when you'd like me to be muted. Just when I am muted. That's all we're really looking for there. Um, before, uh, if you would turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black uh, pew, a Bible in the pew in front of you or in a chair. Uh, Matthew chapter 7 is where we will be this morning. We're going to read the first six verses. But before we do that, I wanted to draw your attention to one other announcement in this little bulletin that you got. Uh, it's right at the top. It says one-to-one ministry. Last year, from about April to October, uh, the women in our congregations um, were matched up with one another and did some one-to-one ministry, sometimes for friendship, sometimes just to connect with somebody, sometimes for mentoring and you know, some new stage of life, or for Bible study and discipleship, just to encourage one another. And uh, it's a wonderful, beneficial thing to do that. And so this year, now that the ladies have beta tested it for us, uh, we are going to do that as a congregation. Men paired up with men, women paired up with women. And that's what you find here in this, uh, this top announcement. Uh, what we'd like you to do is to consider investing maybe one to two hours a month just in a one-on-one relationship with somebody else in the congregation. The fact of the matter is, is that some of you are already doing this, and that's wonderful. We're, at, we're trying to do this all together. In fact, whether you're a member or not, if you've just been around and you'd like to connect, you'd like to know more, you'd like to do this, this is not just for those who are members of Gray Road. This is for anyone who's interested. We'd be glad to pair you up. Uh, we're going to sign up for this. Uh, you can use that QR code. If you're a member, there is a uh, flyer in your box, and there's a somewhere in that large foyer area, there is a kiosk that says one-to-one ministry that you can just put that in, or you can use that code to sign up online. Uh, but we're going to sign up for the next few weeks. We'll do a kickoff uh, meal uh, on Sunday evening, March 13th, where you'll be paired up and it won't be like the, you know, the dating game where you draw back the curtain and there's your person or anything like that. You'll probably at least already recognize them. Uh, and then we'll launch into that uh, then. So please consider doing that. It is wonderfully beneficial. I will say just on a personal note, every time that I have read the Bible, intentionally spent this kind of time with other people, I am always blessed. I am always encouraged in doing that. And so... I would urge you to consider doing that, whether you're a member or not. Uh, Even if you don't know whether you understand Christianity or not, we will find someone who will walk through, say, the Gospel of Mark and help you uh, to do that. So uh, please consider doing that. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6 is what we're going to read, and then we'll pray. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, and this is what the Spirit says to us. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but 
do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help. Father, this is your word spoken by our Lord Jesus Christ. We are your people. We are here to hear from you. And so we pray that you will work by your spirit. I pray you'll fill me with your spirit that I might speak truth today. That what we hear is what you are saying here. Not what I think. That we wouldn't bring our thoughts to the table so much as we would come ready to hear your thoughts. We ask that you would do that so that we might be encouraged, be corrected, be challenged, be changed. That this time in your word would work toward greater Christ-likeness in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In my first year at uh, Memphis State University, uh, which is now the University of Memphis, I did what just about every other college freshman does. I signed up for a lot of general education courses that I probably wouldn't otherwise sign up for. Things like chemistry, uh, things like uh, philosophy, things like German, things like English literature. I just wanted to study what I went to school to study. And they said, no, 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 you can't do that. You need to do all these other things. Well, I remember going to my English literature class, and the professor was very young. He couldn't have been, he couldn't have been out of his mid-20s. And, um, and we all thought that was very cool. And, you know, we go around the classroom uh, the first day of class. It's not, you know, there are only 12 or 15 of us in this little class. And, and he, he's having us introduce ourselves, tell what we, what should everybody know? What's important about you that we should know? And so when it came to be my turn, I introduced myself, where I was from, and uh, explained that I'd come to Memphis State for two reasons. One, uh, to play in a band, <laughs> not the band, not like a marching band, but to play in a band, uh, which turned out to be wise because it was in that band that I met uh, my bride. So, uh, but to be in that band, and also uh, my dad said he would only pay for school if it was a state in-state in state school. And Memphis is the farthest I could get from home <laughs> and still have dad help pay for it. So this is my great adventure. And I mentioned in the course of, uh, of introducing myself that I'm a Christian. And when I said that, the professor's eye, eyebrow shot up. He seemed intrigued. He said, oh, I, there is a verse in the Bible that I love. It's my favorite. And so naive me, I'm thinking he's going to mention something like John 3.16 or maybe God is love from 1 John 4. Well, no, that's not what he did. He said, my favorite verse is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Go look it up. 
Well, I did, and once I did, I was like, this is his favorite verse? I mean, all the verses in the Bible, and I didn't, I didn't even get what his choice was all about. But early on in the semester, we were having a discussion, debating some topic, and it was very clear that several of my classmates, their thoughts and ideas were opposed to a biblical worldview. So when it came my turn to contribute to this conversation, I spoke, I said what I thought was off about this or that, and, and, and this is actually how I think we ought to see it. And at that moment, my professor put his hand up to me and said, Toby, judge not, lest ye be judged. It happened several more times that semester. Jesus' words in Matthew 7 verse 1 were used as a shutdown for interaction, for conversation about right and wrong, for expressing a biblical perspective on just about anything. And at that point in my life, I wasn't really equipped to know how I ought to handle that. How do you handle that when you're... I hadn't thought through that at all. Thankfully, I had him another semester, so I got a little better, I think, as we went along. But, but still, it's... One of the things that I've actually learned since that first semester of college is that my English professor isn't the only one who uses Matthew 7 verse 1 that way. Did you know that? To use it to shut things down, and, and even some Christians will do that. It's terribly sad. They don't use it. We don't use it as a sword to help us fight the good fight and live for Jesus. So often it's used as a shield to block to shut down others when they speak into our lives so that we'll see what's wrong and pursue what's right. Now, as many of you know, I had surgery on my left foot back in October. And a condition I've been dealing with for some time now has complicated and prolonged my uh, recovery from that. But two days ago, I made a surprising and disappointing discovery. And that is that I've been walking wrongly. In this time, I mean, I don't know if I was walking wrong before surgery, but I've been walking wrongly since surgery. I will walk around and instinctively do it wrong in order to protect my foot from pain so that I can walk like this. And I feel a little bit, but there's... There's not much there, and I, was feel, and I was feeling pretty good about myself. I was like, we're getting along here. I can, I can walk back and forth on the stage. I can start, you know, looking people in their eyes again, you know, on the left and on the right and all these things. But it was on Friday I realized I wasn't transferring my weight to the front part of my foot at all. So I'm not walking as I should, but it was an instinct to try to guard myself against pain. So my... My, my sense of not limping as much, my sense of less pain hasn't actually been a sign of health and healing. It's just been a sign that I've been guarding my foot. I deceived myself into thinking I was better than I was. Friends, do you know that that is exactly the same thing that happens when, he use a, when we use a text like this to guard our ears? from listening to biblical correction, to guard our hearts from the pain of seeing our sin, it'll seem like I'm walking along just fine. I'm walking along just fine. 
I don't need you to say anything. I'm walking fine. And then someone comes along and says, put some weight on the front part of your foot. And I won't do it now because I don't want you to see my face contort in all manner of ways. It catches me by surprise. But I've been trying the last two days to mostly put weight on it, which is, as you might imagine, a very pleasant experience. But isn't that what we do? Don't we walk around instinctively guarding ourselves from those things? Because we don't want to hear them. Maybe you've done that as we've walked through the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you've instinctively raised up a shield to block the revelation of pride or of anger and hatred in your heart or of lust or of the worry you justify or some other sin that's come up along the way. Maybe you've just, in your heart, put your hand up like my English professor and said, judge not. Well, as we come to this text, I have a question. I wonder, is Jesus actually handing us in this text a shield? A shield to protect us from unwanted input. A shield from getting our, from, to keep words from getting to our hearts. A shield to guard our ears. Or is he handing us a sword? to fight what goes wrong in us and to fight the, for the good of others. Well, let's let the Bible answer, shall we? The first thing Jesus says is judge not. That's where he spends most of his time. That's where I'll spend most of mine. Now, to understand what Jesus means here, let's start with what Jesus is not saying, all right? Martin Lloyd-Jones used to tell young preachers that if they're going to make an argument, they should start with the negative. So that's what I'll do today for uh, Lloyd-Jones' sake. What is Jesus not saying? Well, the first thing he's not saying is that we ought to stop discerning truth and error. He's not saying that when he says judge not. The Christian life is a thinking life. It's a discerning life. In that sense, it is a judging life. So that when we read a book or hear a sermon or get someone's perspective on cultural events or current events, our minds must be engaged. In fact, God commands us in his word to be discerning, to judge in this way. So an example is 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. That is a command actually to judge, to separate what's right from what's wrong, to make a distinction, to discriminate between ideas. The next thing that Jesus is not saying is stop correcting one another. He's not actually saying that. Now look around this room. This isn't like those medical, you know, those medical movies where they say, look to your left and look to your right. One of those people won't be here in six months, something like that. That's not what we're doing today. All right, but if you just look around this room, what you'll find is within this room is one of God's great plans for your spiritual growth. We are meant to help one another grow spiritually. And part of that is correction so that when... We see someone off track in doctrine, we offer correction. 
In fact, this is what pastors are to lead the way in. Titus chapter 1 says that we are to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. When we see someone, a friend, who's off track in their life, they're wandering into sin. We're meant to offer correction. If that sin is against us, Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, just you and him alone. But in general, Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So Jesus, Jesus isn't saying stop correcting one another. Otherwise, Paul is in big trouble when he goes and talks to Peter about his fear of man, right? And he, how he shuts other people. He won't dine with Gentiles, even though the Gentiles are included. And on the flip side of that, Jesus is also not saying, stop accepting correction from others. He's not saying, avoid correction. You see, we must be willing, actually, to gently correct others, and we must be willing to receive correction. Now, did you hear that? Because the adverb is only in one of those sentences. <laughs> we must be willing to gently correct others, and we must be willing to receive correction. That means even when the correction doesn't come, when I want, how I want, from whom I want, I should be willing to be corrected. Because the big deal isn't who is it and how they did it. The big deal is I'm in error here. That needs to be the biggest deal in my mind. Do you remember when David's walking along with his men and there's a guy on the hill and they're cursing, he's cursing David, right? Calling him, yo, you man who sheds blood. Da, 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 da. And you know, his faithful guys, what do they do? They're like, look, we could go take his head off right now if you'd like. And some of us would be like, yeah, David, tell him, sick him, you know? But David says, how do you know but that God doesn't have him saying that? Isn't that interesting? He's not saying avoid correction from others. He's also, the last thing I'll mention, and this is connected to all of them, he's not saying ignore the problems that we see in others. Look, the fact of the matter is, is that we shouldn't be private investigators, right? Going around prying into people's lives, trying to dig up dirt on them. But we should be bodyguards. That when we see a threat, we're willing to protect. So in essence, Jesus isn't saying in this text, live and let live. Especially when letting live is dangerous to the other person and their soul. Because then it's not live and let live. Then it's live and let die. Love doesn't do that. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ. His love drove him to rescue us from sin. And our love for one another ought to drive us to step in and to speak with compassion and courage and help others walk out of sin and into holiness. So Jesus is not saying, make sure you understand what Jesus is not saying, but that brings us to what Jesus is saying. All right? Again, he's, he, it's not about courageously and compassionately speaking truth to other people. It's actually about 
He's actually saying there's a wrong way to do it. There's a wrong way to speak. There's a wrong way to respond when things go wrong and you see it in someone else. You see, what Jesus is saying when he says judge not is that we ought not to take, presume to take God's place as the final judge, the final authority. We don't walk into the, throne, into the court of heaven, as it were, and swipe the gavel from God and excuse him from his bench so that we can sit down and hold court ourselves. That's what Jesus is saying. And whether that court is held out loud as you talk or whether that court is held in your mind, don't presume to take God's place. You see, when we do that, we're not just belittling God and exalting ourselves. We actually forget that we're sinners and that we're fallible, and we are not actually equipped to judge anyone. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. You see, there's nothing so, so awful in a courtroom as a corrupt judge. A judge who uses the bench for himself or herself to promote their ideas, to promote their career, to promote their status. And when we take the gavel from God, friends... We become that corrupt judge. And the spirit with which we use that gavel is polluted by our sin. And so Jesus warns us against it. He warns us, all who would be judges, warning us against what is called being censorious, all right, which is a word that means being severely critical or harsh with others. I mean, that is a dangerous spirit, isn't it? It's the spirit that loves finding faults in people. That when you're asked to come in and evaluate something, the first thing on your mind is, I'm going to find all the things that are wrong with this deal. It's the spirit that loves to condemn. It's the spirit that exalts itself by degrading others. It's the spirit that focus, focuses on being destructive rather than constructive. My goodness, we, we who are parents need to hear that, don't we? When it comes to correcting our children. Maybe it's just me. But I'm not sure that it is. This spirit never sees what's good. It never takes notice of the little steps of progress. It never pays attention to the little glimmer of hope. It always looks for the weakness of the other and is prepared to crush the other with the gavel that they have in their hand. It's the spirit of shaking the head and wagging the finger and praying with the Pharisee, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. So Jesus says, judge not. Judge not. 
Well, next think about the reason that Jesus gives for this. Why is it that we ought not to judge? We'll just keep reading, beginning in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, when we set ourselves up as judges over others, we invite a more thorough examination and evaluation of ourselves. This is what James says in James 3, isn't it? Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But Paul, it's almost like Paul is listening to, has these words of Jesus in his mind when he writes Romans 2, verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Is that what you presume? The measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, Jesus is primarily speaking to his disciples. There is an eternal judgment. There is eternal separation from God, eternal punishment by God, eternal wrath from God on all who do not belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. But in speaking to these disciples, I think in speaking about what it's like to be in the kingdom, I don't believe that Jesus is talking about that judgment. There are other judgments. Did you know that? There are a couple of more. One is there are temporal judgments. Temporal judgments. Sometimes God sends pain in our life as a result of of our sin. We are always rightly very quick not to automatically associate pain and suffering with sin in our life. That's a right thing to not automatically assume it. But we ought to not to assume that there couldn't possibly be any reason why God might send pain in my life to help me to see that the way that I'm living is all wrong. When you go to a place like 1 Corinthians 11, these, this church is approaching the Lord's Supper wrongly, sinfully, and they're suffering temporal judgment for it. In fact, Paul says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It's not divine karma, you understand. Please do not slip into such wrong thinking. Thinking. When these temporal judgments come, it is the love, it is the divine love of God our Father who disciplines his children, calls us back so that we will produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We should see pain, whether we can connect it to some sin or not, we should see pain as a means by which God is calling us to himself. And then the other kind of judgment to consider is the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Not determining one's entrance into heaven. Again, Paul is writing to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ there, but determining rewards. So in essence, you may add pain and hardship in your life if you walk around with the God's gavel in your hand. Or you may simply just lose reward you might have had otherwise if you 
walk around with God's gavel in your hand. So judge not. Judge not. Which brings us to how we obey Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just leave us there. He he gives us instruction, beginning in verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Jesus does not ask that because he doesn't know why. All right? Jesus knows the human heart. He knows why we see specks in other people better than logs in ourselves. He's asking for the sake of those who are hearing. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, most of you know the the Lady Justice, right? The statue that uh, holds the scale, the scale of justice, and is blindfolded, right? Blind to what can be seen, only is meant to hear the truth, And then way out on the scales, right? This is a good kind of blindness. Well, the kind of blindness Jesus is talking about is not a good blindness. You got a two-by-four in your eye, you can't see nothing. Being harsh, being proud, being a fault finder, this kind of blindness is a blindness to our own sin, Those who do it might say, yes, but I just want righteousness. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? To want righteousness? It's a good thing. But if I was truly after righteousness, would I really ignore my own need for it? No. No, I wouldn't. Now, we have this imagery of the speck and the log. I don't know... um, uh, if you've ever gotten a piece of sawdust in your eyes, you ever gotten a piece of sawdust in your eye? It doesn't feel like a speck, does it? It's not like, oh, this is so small. I don't even have to think about this. No, what happens? Well, what happens to me is my eyes instinctively shut. They start to water, and I'm looking for any way to get it out. Uh, you know, and you walk around, you're doing this, right? Your eyes are blinking very, very quickly trying to expel this thing from your eyes. Do you know in that moment what you don't want? your blind friend to show up with tweezers (laughs) to try to get that speck out of your eye, poking around because he'll never find it. Well, that's the idea here, isn't it? We can't actually see things clearly. We can't see ourselves clearly, the other person clearly, the sin clearly. We can't see anything clearly when we ignore the sin in our own lives. Sin messes up our vision. We have to be committed to clear spiritual sight. Here's the deal, friends, is that our sin should always look bigger in our eyes than anyone else's. Always. It should be the first sin to turn our stomachs and make us shake our head at ourselves and wag our fingers in the mirror and pray, not with the Pharisees, but with the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We should be committed to repentance. We should be committed to pursuing our own righteousness, to 
expelling the log from our own eye. And while we ought to be concerned always with our own soul first, we are not only to be concerned for our own soul. Did you see, hear what Jesus said in verse 5? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Seeing our sin, hating it, dealing with it, repenting of it, knowing the forgiveness of sin actually equips us with love and mercy and patience when we go to help others. So that we come to them not with the clumsy and destructive hands of a blind judge, but we come to them with the caring and skillful hands of one who's been there, who knows and who's been enlisted as a surgeon to help. So Jesus says, judge not. I mean, he's not telling us not to speak. He's not telling us not to make value judgments. He's not telling us not to correct one another. But he is saying that the words we do speak need to be based on his authority, not on our authority. And the words we do speak need to be spoken with his compassion and not our pride. Judge not, lest ye be judged. The second thing Jesus says in this text is actually exercise judgment. <laughs> you just count on Jesus for stuff like that, can't you? Judge not, exercise judgment. Judge not. It's like that passage in uh, Proverbs 26, you know. Uh, I think it's verses 4 and 5. Um, uh, uh, don't correct a fool according to his folly. Correct a fool, you know, <laughs> correct a fool according to his folly. You're just like, what's going on here? Well, there's a time and a place for both, isn't there? There's a time and a place for both. But here Jesus is saying exercise judgment. It, this bit about the dogs and, and the pigs, it seems very disconnected from what comes before it, but it's not. Jesus is saying that these men need to use discernment in, in uh, serving. They need to use they need to use discernment in sharing the gospel, in doing ministry work. Listen to it. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now this holy thing, this pearl, this precious commodity that shouldn't just be thrown around willy-nilly and trampled and treated as if it's worthless garbage, is the Christian message. It is the gospel. In reality, this is all we have to give. This is the only thing we have to cast before other people. Is what God says. Jesus didn't send us into the world with laws and policies. Jesus didn't send us into the world with self-help tips. Jesus didn't send us in, into the world with, you know, financial advice. Jesus didn't send us into the world to help others to be good, to make other people more religious. Jesus sends us into the world with a message from God, a message whose power changes everything, gives spiritual life, brings the hope of forgiveness, saves people from eternal judgment. It's the old, old story of Jesus and his love, his stainless, spotless, sinless life, his death, 
in our place to pay for our sin, his resurrection on the third day and conquering sin and death and hell, his grace for sinners, his willingness to save all who come to him. That's what you've got in your back pocket everywhere you go. You may not know how to talk, to that, talk about that headline. You may not know, you may not be smart enough financially to give financial advice. But if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got that in your back pocket all the time. That's why Paul says it is of first importance. First importance. Did you know that you could convince, yourself, convince your friend to think like you about cultural things, to think like you, even about matters of sin? You could convince that person that that sin is wrong and that sin is wrong and that sin is wrong. And do you know they can be right about those things and wrong with God? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is of first importance. This is what we have. Friends, if, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever else it is that you hear today, hear that. Jesus Christ has died and been raised again and will save you from your sin, will forgive you if you come to him by faith. Because in the end, you could walk away and think, you know what, I, I don't think I should be as judgmental in my life after hearing that. Isn't that good of Jesus just to give us some good moral teaching, try to make the world a better place? Friend, you can walk away, and it may be or may not be that your life is a little less judgy, but the fact of the matter is, is it doesn't help us at all with God. But here's what helps us. The one who will judge the living and the dead got down off the bench and up on the cross. So that at the end, Jesus Christ, the judge, becomes our advocate. Our advocate. And the sentence of not guilty stands forever. Because of his blood. If you don't know that forgiveness of sins, if you don't know Jesus Christ, I would urge you to turn to him now. Come talk to me. Come talk. You don't have to talk to me to turn to Jesus. Just turn to him right there in your heart, right where you're at. But I would love nothing more to talk to you more about that if you want to. In fact, you can talk to any one of these members of Gray Road and they would be glad to talk to you about the gospel. Nothing would actually be a better highlight for this day than to talk to you about knowing Jesus. That's all we have. This gospel is the holy thing, the pearl, that we shouldn't just lay out for dogs and pigs. Now... That may not strike some of you very well because we're a dog-loving society, aren't we? We indulge our canines with just about anything they could ever want. You've seen that commercial where the guy's at work and he's having uh, Uber or some DoorDash send things to his dog who's at home? Send him a little toy. Send him a little peanut butter. All that manner of stuff. Well, in... 
the, the audience that Jesus is talking to, they're not going to go home and pet Fido and say, I'm not giving you the gospel. That's not what that's about. Because dogs were not mostly lovable pets. Dogs were actually scavengers. They were wild. They were fierce. You didn't mess with a dog. So the people listening to Jesus wouldn't indulge dogs. They'd avoid them. And pigs, well, to the Jewish ear, the pig is the symbol for everything that is unclean. Everything that is not permitted in worship. If there's anything a Jew wanted to avoid, it was being unclean. So these dogs and pigs are not merely unbelievers. These are fierce opponents who trample every word of forgiveness, growl at the reality of judgment, plug their ears, and bark unrelenting, hateful arguments back. Jesus says that there are those, there comes a time when you don't give the gospel to these people so that they can just trample it and then attack you. That's what he's saying. Now, let's be clear. Patient persistence in sharing the gospel is the normative method of gospel ministry. That's the normal, right? If you're a parent, that's what you've been doing since your kids were born, isn't it? Sharing the gospel, teaching, encouraging, answering questions. It's not like they got to six years old and you're like, you are done. You know, I mean, you didn't do that. You just keep going. You keep going. And, and uh, there's actually, I can't remember his name, so one of you will probably tell me afterwards. But there's a book in the cafe, I've read it, it's wonderful, called uh, 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 Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's about a man who grew up in a Muslim home, and he met a, he met a friend in college named Ryan. And for four years, he and Ryan, I remembered his friend, Neil Koresh, is that his name? Close enough? Good. All right. Excellent. Uh, so anyway, he meets this young man, and this young man speaks with him about Jesus for four years. Four years of talking, four years of conversation, four years of asking questions, four years of giving arguments, four years, four years, four years, and then in four years, you know what happened? That man came to faith in Jesus Christ, and he didn't just come to faith in Jesus Christ. He didn't just write down his story the Lord used him as a public apologist for the Christian faith. We do that with friends. We do that with our children. We do that. Patient persistence is it. I mean, that's the pattern of the church. Paul tells Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. But Jesus says, there may be a day when you need to stop. Because the heart is only getting harder and you're inviting attacks and your time and your energy may be better served elsewhere. Jesus, when he sends out two by two in Matthew 10, says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. That's, what he's, that's an act of judgment. That's exercising judgment. And the same Paul who prescribes Patience with Timothy actually did this shaking off the dust in the book of Acts a few times. One was in um, Acts 18. It says, They opposed him and reviled him. He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. 
Look, that kind of thing is a heartbreaking moment for any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to see the conscience of another human being seared and hardened to that point. And it should never be taken uh, lightly. And it should never be carried out proudly. But Jesus says it may be necessary because we must exercise judgment. So judge not, Jesus says. Don't swipe the gavel from God. Don't assume his authority for yourself. But don't think for a minute that you don't need to exercise judgment in ministry, in life. You have to, or you'll waste your time and energy on those who only want to fight when you could give yourself to what may be a field white unto harvest. Now, let me go back to the question I asked you at the beginning What do you think? Is Jesus giving us a shield here? to protect us from listening, to protect us from the pain of being corrected? Or is Jesus giving us a sword to put to death our tendency to take the judge's bench, to fight for our spiritual lives, to fight for the spiritual lives of others? I wonder how you'd answer that question. Because, friends, it's a sword. May God help us to use it well. Let's pray. Our Father, you are the judge of all the earth. All authority resides with you. We are but fallible, fallen creatures. Oh God, forgive us when we swipe the gavel from your hand and presume to exercise our authority in your place when it comes to the judgment of others. Help us to turn from such a way of behaving Give us grace to remove logs from our own eyes for your glory so that we may help a brother with his speck for your glory. Help us to judge not and help us to exercise judgment We know that you are patient. Help us to be patient as we are sharing the gospel, as we are ministering to others. Lord, may we never be glad or excited or rejoice in the idea of ceasing to share, ceasing to minister to someone. But we pray, God, that you will give us wisdom in those things. And if we are to err to err in the side of mercy. Lord, for all of this, for, for not judging and for exercising judgment, we need your Spirit's help. So we pray for that. We pray that we will be a congregation that judges not and that exercises judgment. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ who has saved us from final judgment. Amen.